The records don't lie, but your ancestors might. Welcome to The Criminal Genealogist, where true crime and genealogy intersect. Hello, my criminal genies. I'm your host, Michelle Bates, and I'm excited you're here for another episode of The Criminal Genealogist, where true crime and genealogy intersect. A bit of housekeeping before we get started. If you want to support this podcast, please make sure to like, follow, subscribe, or whatever options you have where you listen to your favorite podcast. You can visit us at thecriminalgenealogist.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Links are below. All the sources I use for this research are in the show notes. Thanks, and let's get started. I am back, my criminal genies, and how I have missed you. I had to take a few weeks off because I had too much on my plate, and sadly, the podcast had to go on vacation. However, I am wiser after completing a course with the Salt Lake Institute of Genealogy, also known as SLIG, in Advanced Practicum, and completing another course in Land Records with a new institute, the Applied Genealogy Institute, also known as APGEN. Y'all, my brain was on overdrive, but I learned so much over those six weeks and found out some things about my great-great-grandfather, William Alway, and his land holdings in Kansas. Definitely more research to do there, but still no criminals. I'm beginning to feel left out because you all have some great stories that I have been lining up for the rest of the season. Oh, and I have some updates on previous episodes. This is going to blow your mind. Okay. Maybe not blow your mind, but perhaps peek it a little. So if you remember the very first episode about John T. Mitchell and the Waverly Hills Sanatorium in Louisville, Kentucky, where his wife Lucille was killed by a man named Charles Chester Curitan, who went by Bill. Now he was acquitted, so I didn't talk about him too much, but I did go into a quick timeline about his life. And, well, one of his descendants reached out to me, his grandson, and said that his cousin had sent him the episode and that they both loved it. Whew, I thought that they might be mad at me about talking about their grandfather. So that was a relief. He has some information about Bill Curitan that he wants to share. And let's just say that allegedly his grandma, Bill's wife, died in a similar way that Lucille Mitchell did. I'll have more on that in the coming weeks as I have time to explore. The other episode was episode number five, which focused on Homer Morris and his mom, Zoa Haskins Morris Rosenteel. I researched Zoa and her first husband, Thurman, and their son, Homer Morris. The man who sent me the information on this ancestor, Lee, unfortunately passed away a week after the episode aired. His wife was thoughtful and sent me an email to let me know, and she said that he did get to listen to the episode before he passed and that he loved it. He shared it with his family and his wife wanted to thank me for researching her husband's family. This is why I do this. Researching ancestors for others brings me so much joy. And also on this episode, I received an email the other day from another descendant. This was from a guy named John, who is the great grandson of Zoa's brother, Allison Allie Haskins. So we're going to get together and discuss more of this family lore. The weirdest thing and probably the coolest thing about this communication 
John and I are distant cousins. Not sure how yet, but maybe I'm related to Zoa somehow. What are the odds? I just love genealogy. Oh, I almost forgot to mention a cool new tool for you to contact us and leave an audio recording. If you go to www.speakpipe.com forward slash the criminal genealogist podcast, you can record a message and then leave your name and email. If you have an ancestor you want to have featured or just give us feedback on the podcast, now is your chance. You could be featured on the podcast. All the links to everything I just talked about, I will put in the show notes. And none of these are affiliates or sponsors of the show, just institutes and tools I use. Though, if you want to sponsor me, leave me a message. Okay, let's jump into today's case. Listener Erin Pyle sent me a story about her fifth great-grandfather, John Slack. He was an exciseman and convicted of fraud in the UK and sent away to Australia. Very similar to many convicts in the UK at that time, like Elijah Upjohn, whom we talked about in an earlier episode. For those who aren't sure what an exciseman is, it is basically a tax collector. They would determine if articles were liable for excise under British law. At the time of his conviction on March 24, 1834, John Slack was 36 years of age. The Excise Commission would often discharge officers for being drunk, corrupt, or inefficient, but if an officer was caught stealing the revenue, he was taken to court and made an example. This wasn't a frequent occurrence, but when it did happen, the commission would publicize the offense and the sentencing so other officers would be warned of the consequences. John Slack was an example as an officer for the Norwich Collection after he received money from traders to obtain licenses for them, but instead he took the money for himself. The board had no choice but to move forward with criminal proceedings for his gross imposition and fraud. He was tried at the last assize at Chester. I had to go look up what that meant. It just as the name of the court in Chester, Cheshire. The court still stands today and was rebuilt in the late 1700s because it was falling apart. It was built in 1310, so that makes sense. The new building was completed in 1801, so by 1834, it was still fairly new for John's trial. Interesting fact about this court, it was home to several infamous trials, including those of Ian Brady and Myra Henley, known as the Moore's Murderers, in April 1966. And the court also saw the trial and conviction of Howard Hughes for the murder of Sophie Hook in June of 1996. How did I not know about this? Those two cases might make it into a next season. All right, back to John. So after he was convicted, he was sentenced to seven years transportation, which is pretty common. This meant that he would be sent to Australia on a ship, which was often a three to four month journey in deplorable conditions. He would serve his time in prison in Australia. At the time of his conviction, he was married with six children, three boys and three girls. Our listener Aaron is descended from one of John's daughters, Janet Slack. He was a Protestant man standing five feet, five inches tall with brown hair, hazel eyes and a dark complexion. He had lost two upper front teeth and he had a scar on a finger on his left hand. 
I find that criminal records and draft registrations are the best for finding physical descriptions of our primarily male ancestors. So John embarked on the ship Marianne with 305 other convicts on July 6, 1835, and arrived in Sydney, Australia on October 31st, arriving after four months of travel and 20 months after he was convicted. So initially, I wasn't sure why it took so long for him to leave for Australia after his conviction, but my guess was that he was imprisoned on a hulk in the UK prior to leaving on the Marianne in 1835. So I did some more research and uh, I did confirm that he was on a hulk and was found on the ship Fortitude and moored in Chatham, 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 totally butchering that, I'm sure. So he would have been there until he left in July of 1835. That wouldn't have been a fun condition either, but that's what you do when you commit crimes. So after four years in Australia, he was granted a ticket of leave, which allowed him to live and work outside the prison. He served the remainder of his time without incident and doesn't appear to have caused any further trouble. John is found in several places in Australia, including Wellington and Bathurst in New South Wales. In 1845 and 1846, he was found buying land with a Peter Jackson in Stanley County in the city of Brisbane, Queensland, Australia of approximately three acres and then another four acres. Now, I'm not sure who Peter Jackson is. Maybe he was a fellow prisoner. So I'll have to dig into that further. It isn't known whether he ever went back to see his family in the UK as they chose to stay there, but one son was known to have gone to Australia to be close to his father. William Dunbar Howe Slack went to Australia in 1848 on the ship Fairley, And records show that in 1850, he bought one acre of land, also in Stanley. When his father died in Queensland in 1861, William was listed as the executioner, executioner, yeah, executioner of John's will in the probate notification posted in the Queensland newspaper on November 22nd, 1861. So let's go back in time and look at life when John was born and when he got married. So John Slack Jr. was born to parents John Slack Sr. and Margaret Lilly, likely in December of 1796, as he was baptized on January 8, 1797 at Berwick-upon-Tweed, England. And most baptisms in England during this time were performed a few weeks after the baby's birth. Now, I couldn't validate any siblings prior to recording this, but likely he did have them. His parents were married on September 16th, 1794, also in Berwick-upon-Tweed. The family seems to have a very long history in this parish and general area of England. So both his parents were born and died in Berwick, as well as his paternal grandparents, William Slack and Jane Thompson. So John Slack married Sarah Howe on May 18, 1819, again in Berwick-upon-Tweed in England. As discussed earlier, John was an exciseman officer, which isn't a position just given to anybody. I have a feeling that the family was probably in a pretty good social standing and financially as well. So it makes you wonder why he would choose to steal money that didn't belong to him. 
John and Sarah had six children, as we discussed earlier. Aaron's fourth great-grandmother, Janet Slack, is one of John and Sarah's children, and she was baptized on January 30th, 1820, in Berwick, which is a town and civil parish in Northumberland, England. It's actually located two and a half miles south of the Anglo-Scottish border, and it is the northernmost town in England. So some records for her have her listed as being born in Scotland, but she was actually south of the border. Janet was married in 1839 at Southwark, England, which is a suburb of London. On the marriage record, she has her father listed as a carpenter, so it seems she might have known what was happening with her father over in Australia, as he was likely doing labor as his punishment, or she just put down a random occupation. We shall never know for sure. But clearly he was not there to walk her down the aisle. In 1841, Sarah Slack, listed as age 40, was living in Berwick in an area called Woolmarket. Living with her were her kids, William, Margaret, Sarah, and Richard, and her occupation is listed as straw hat maker. Also listed in this area and underneath her on the census is a Thomas Howe, age 50, and he's listed as an innkeeper. My guess is this is a brother or maybe a cousin. In the 1861 census, she is found as a visitor in her daughter Margaret's home in Westminster and listed as 68. So either the 1841 census was wrong or this one was, or maybe they both were. She died shortly after in 1864. So we know that John Slack died in 1861 per the probate notice in Queensland and that William, his son, was the executor of his will. Prior to John's death, however, remember that land that he bought in 1845? Well, this land was specifically located in what is now the city of Logan in Queensland. It, one of the oldest settled areas in Logan is Slacks Creek. Yep, you heard that right. Slacks Creek is named after the Slack family, John and his son William. John had a cattle run there, and the Aboriginal name for the creek was Mungaree, which means places of fish, and this is the name that John gave to the place. He grazed cattle there from 1845 until he died in 1861. His William, his William, his son William stayed in the area, and he actually married a local girl named Mary Ann Skyring. So after his dad died, he actually leased the land uh, along there where he ran a slaughterhouse. So I would have to say that John made up for his criminal behavior and hopefully remained an honest, hardworking man the rest of his life. I would love to know why he didn't go back to the UK and do right by his wife and other children, but perhaps he tried. Some things we will never have the answers to, and that is something we have to learn to be okay with. So until next time, my criminal genies, remember, the records don't lie, but your ancestors might.